Hi, I'm Jennifer Ackerman Haywood, and you're listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast. This show is all about art, craft, and creativity, and I produce it weekly in the hope that it will help all of us live long and crafty lives. Don't be fooled by Greg Darrenanian's tattoos and body piercings. He knows how to get his craft on. A punk rocker of craft, Greg knits and cross-stitches, and he does it his way. Sure, he stitched those dainty store-bought kits, but those get old after a while. Now he's known for the humorous and slightly off-color cross-stitch designs that he sells under the name Dirty Pillows. And thanks to Greg, there's now a venue for non-traditional crafters to showcase their wares. Greg is the 30-year-old proud founder of Bizarre Bazaar, a punk rock craft fair that features crafty vendors with talent and attitude. He kicked off the first Bazaar Bazaar in 2001 near Boston. A wild success, the alternative craft event has spread to L.A., the city Greg now calls home, San Francisco, and Cleveland. California listeners can check out Bazaar Bazaar this Saturday and Sunday, April 22nd and 23rd at the Maker Fair at the San Mateo Fairgrounds. Greg is also the author of Bazaar Bazaar, Not Your Granny's Craft Book, featuring project ideas from Greg and several of his crafty friends. The book contains craft Q&A with each artist and clever instructions for fun goods like anarchy soap and vinyl record cuffs, and of course, a cross-stitch project from Greg. Check it out and be inspired to craft outside the box. On this episode of Craft Sanity, Greg is going to tell us the story of how he got so crafty and give us an opportunity to get to know the man behind the intricate cross-stitch. He'll also give us some tips for scoring a table at the next Bazaar Bazaar. And visit Craft Sanity after the show for links to all of Greg's cool projects. Thank you so much for, for being on the show. And I'd like to kind of start off by just kind of some kind of background stuff. Um, how old are you? Um, last year, I turned 30, so I'm sort of living out the last month and a half of my 30th year right now. Okay. <laughs> well, so, okay, so you're 30 and you're living, where do you live now? I live in Los Angeles in a neighborhood called Silver Lake. So do you see a lot of famous people? I do. Yeah, because I, I live in Michigan and I don't see any famous people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not many celebrities wandering around Michigan, I guess. No, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> So, are you from the California originally? No, no. Well, originally, originally. Oh, of course you're not, because I know you started Bizarre Bazaar in Boston. Right. I um I was born overseas, but I grew up in Massachusetts, uh, in the sort of woodsy suburbs and a town called Acton, and um, I was. And when I graduated high school, I moved to Indiana, and I lived there for like seven years. Then I moved back to Boston, to the Boston area, uh, back in with my folks for two years. At which time, during that time, is when I when I uh, started Bizarre Bazaar with friends of mine in the Boston area. And then in 2002, I moved to Los Angeles. So was that because of Bizarre Bazaar, or? No, Just because actually, you wanted to live. Um, it was an interesting, like, I had a really kind of um, horrible experience with uh, a coworker at my job in Massachusetts, and I was like, okay, like, what my I had once envisioned this sort of more long-term stay at this job, but then that became so not desirable. But as, as it happened, coincidentally, 
I was planning on visiting Los Angeles for two weeks during that summer, summer of uh, 02, to um, a friend of mine named uh, Rudy had put on this um, queer-oriented punk uh, festival called Scudderfest. So I come out for that, and I really saw so many people in L.A. who were you know, my age, and really making a go of it in terms of doing creative things. Um, L.A. was not at all like what I expected, and just like I saw people having this, you know, relative success, in this way I didn't see it at all in Boston. And um, L.A. also was like, seemed very affordable to me compared to the prospects of moving out of my folks' house into the city of Boston. So I got, you know, I got... I went back home and I really like couldn't stop thinking about LA and things, you know, with the job had deteriorated so bad and I was planning on moving out of my folks' house anyway, so I just kind of decided to pack it up and head west. It was No, what if I could stop you for a second, what kind of job were you doing? Like what was your profession before you um, I was working uh doing mental health social work. Okay. Which I'd been doing for about seven years at the end of my tenure in Massachusetts. Okay. I mean, I had, because I had done it in Indiana, you know, previously. Um, so I just, like, I'd, I had made a few friends on that trip, and um, the the original friends that I went to visit, I had made when my band was touring. So, like, when we would play shows in L.A., like, I got to know a couple people and kept in touch with them, which is why I went back for a visit, and I met more people. And then I just decided that that was where I wanted to be. And um, I came here, and I absolutely love Los Angeles. So are you doing the same kind of work now? No. Actually, I was for a short time. Like, I've had some different jobs. One, I was a courier when I first got here, which was both great because I learned my way around Los Angeles very quickly and, like, awful because it's, like, hell on your car. And it's just really disheartening to deliver... um, like movie scripts and stuff to these people who are like eight years younger than you or something and living in these million dollar houses. Oh, geez. <laughs> that would be kind of a strange experience. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, they, you know, and just like, <laughs> you're like, oh, God. <laughs> I'm schlepping stuff all over town, ruining my station wagon, you know, so I can get attitude from some, like, you know, pe- some hip squeak barely out of college she's got more money than god you know so. <laughs> were any of these people people that you'd recognized or seen in movies before the only one was shannon elizabeth who was in that movie american pie okay she played like the you know the sexy exchange student <laughs> right and, um, <laughs> i just remember i had like some really heavy book or something that i was delivering to her and she was like she gave me a lot of grief about having to come to the door to sign for it she was just like, you can't leave it. I was like, no, I can't leave it. Just, you know. I mean, it was, <laughs> she was like right inside the door, too. Which oh, I was geez. like, okay. <laughs> you know, so clearly like myself and the other couriers, because you always sort of would sort of like run into other couriers. Like none of us really cared at all about like whatever trade secrets it was they thought they were protecting through this like rigorous security process, you know. Well, you might have, you know, a, a, an essay or some stories you could write down out of that, because I think that would, could be kind of a, you know, an interesting, mm-hmm. maybe Davis Sedera, David Sedaris would really take that for a ride. I think and you, right. you could, in, in that vein, you probably could really, you know, because I mean, it's just, it's so hilarious sometimes, because these people probably don't even have any idea 
how they're coming across, you know. Right. Because it was such a odd, like, contrast because I delivered pizza for two years in college, and that was a blast, too. And it, for many of the same reasons that I like being a courier, um, but, yeah, the people you encounter delivering pizza are vastly different than the people you encounter delivering uh, scripts and film reels and rough cuts and such things. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like you had you just have had a lot of adventures. Yes. And I that's only the first 30 years. Yeah. So what are you doing right now? I mean, what, what job do you do right now? Right now, um, I think in the language of L.A., I would say that I'm between projects. In the language of Massachusetts, I'd be unemployed. Okay. <laughs> so, so does that mean you have more time for crafting? Um, one would think, but, um, well, I mean, yes and no. Uh, I'm kind of, sometimes I'm kind of not the most disciplined, motivated person. Um, so, like, right now I have about 10 like, half-finished projects, and every time I think of, like, digging through, like, I have all these bins, like, I live in this tiny room, right? And all, all my stuff is in these different bins, um, that are all the same size and all stacked up, you know? And my apartment is, um, like, Tetris. Like, you have to, like, you know, have everything just so and, like, move things out of the way to get to other things. And then, uh, so, and every time I think of, like, I have this big tackle box that I keep all my uh, embroidery floss in and my cross-stitch supplies. Mm -hmm. And every time I think about, like, going in, going through all the bobbins of, to like pick out all the ones that go in X, Y, or Z pattern. And then, you know, I'm just like, oh, God, I don't have the energy for that right now. <laughs> so I've been knitting a lot because the knitting is uh, a lot more um, flexible in terms of like you can just stuff it in your bag and like while you're waiting at the doctor's office, you can pull it out and get a few rows done. Right. You know, you don't have to be looking at a pattern. You barely have to be you know, concentrate. I mean, I'm the most novice knitter, don't get me wrong. I'm, like, pretty... I'm okay, but, like, at, only at the most basic level. But but at least since there's no complicated stitching or whatever that I'm doing, it's like I can just kind of do it for, like, a couple minutes or whatever. But um, I'm working on some craft stuff, but I'm actually working more on... We've got um, the San Francisco Bazaar coming up in a couple weeks, and yeah, why don't you say the dates for that so we can and I'll and I'll remind people in my intro and exit sure, too. Sure, it's uh, April twenty second and twenty third at the San Mateo Fairgrounds, uh, which is just I I think south, like just south of San Francisco, and you can go to bazaarbazaar dot org and get all the you know relevant details. I have to confess, sadly, I don't have all the details memorized in terms of you know like directions and <laughs> oh and i wouldn't expect you to yeah that's something well, that you know. yeah well crafty people are pretty resourceful so i'm sure they'll be able to, to get well, what they need yeah yeah well what i'd like to do is because um, i want to talk about how you know the whole bizarre bizarre thing came to pass and and everything that you're you know kind of your um you know your whole the book and everything else but i'd like to back up even further sure and we've talked about kind of your your recent history but i'd like to get back to kind of um greg as a a little crafter back when you were just a kid and um, learned how to, and I, I read um, kind of how you got started, but I'd like you to kind of tell us in your words um, kind of your, some of your earliest crafting memories and, and why you think you got into it. Um, well, I, there's a part in the book, and I don't even remember what part it is, where I say that, like, 
I look back on my childhood and there's like evidence that I was a crafter at a very early age because I have these like relics, right, of like some stuff that I made, but like that I don't actually remember making. I know that in the bathroom, um, in the downstairs bathroom of my old house, there's, it's, it's, I'm still not used to the idea of not having that house. My parents just moved out of it last summer after 30 years. Oh, wow. The house I grew up in, I never knew any other home. But um, in the bathroom, there was this little wooden sort of like plaque, and glued to it were like a cup of horse chestnuts and maybe an acorn or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I very distinctly remember that I made that. And, uh, I mean, I don't, I mean, I know that I made it, but I don't remember making it. You know what I mean? Right, and, right. Um, we have, you know, as I'm sure most people do, some of those plates, uh, those dinner plates with the that you could draw on with mm-hmm. that, that you did, like, in nursery school or whatever, mm-hmm. where you... Uh, you know, drew some picture or something on a plate and then took it home. <laughs> yeah, I did one of those myself. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Mine was like totally, you know, it's, I'd like to say it was abstract, but I'm sure at the time I had some definite, like, representational image I was going for. <laughs> right. but, you know, I can always just say that I meant it to be non-representational. Because, you know, I was just that sophisticated at age four or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then I think the real, first real, real memory of crafting, I would have to say, was making potholders. My mother, I don't know how we got on this, like, idea. I think it was that my mother needed potholders. But I remember being, like, equipped, right, like, with this, huge bag um, of jersey loops, which I guess were like, I don't even know where one gets a jersey loop. They were like these little circles that were kind of stretchy because they were knit, you know, like Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, of t-shirt stuff or of jersey. And I was, uh, you know, and then there was this pink, I had a pink loom and I don't know if that was like a coincidence or intentional or if that's the only color they made, but this pink loom, which was like a big square, which had like a comb sort of edging. Right, on a little potholder loom. A lot of people know what this is. Yeah. A lot of people have done this project. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so, you know, and then my mother, and there was a hook for when you had to weave the things in and out. And my mother showed me how to do this. And then I went to work making potholders. And I would sit on the couch in the living room, in the, um, what we called it the family room, uh, you know, after school or, like, during the afternoon. And I always remember that it was a... My mother has been a devotee of a CBS daytime drama soap operas for her... For my whole life. I mean, I think before me, too. Um, <laughs> but it was Search for Tomorrow, which is since off the air. Then As the World Turns. I remember As the World Which is still going. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm right there with my mom. I don't... You know, I catch up pretty quick when I'm home, but, like, when I'm not home, I don't watch it. And then after, as the world turns, Guiding Light. And then, like, as sort of a compromise, it was, like, after Guiding Light was the Mickey Mouse Club and then Aquaman. <laughs> so, like, there was kind of this trade-off. And about that time is when my mom went into the kitchen to start, you know, dinner or do the dishes or something. Prior to that, she was, like, ironing or folding laundry or working on her own, you know, cross-stitch or knitting or something. Um... So I would sit and make these potholders, and then I became, 
I found potholders to be somewhat frustrating because you just got whatever came in the big bag of loops, right? And I just was not satisfied with the consistency of these loops, right? Like even as a small, small child, I was, I remember so distinctly being annoyed. Like I would like pull out, you know, if I was going to use white, I would pull out like maybe 30 white loops and pick out the ones that were like of equal fluffiness. Because <laughs> right? like I didn't really want like some really scrawny one right in with all the things and and like any good child of the 80s i was completely obsessed with things being in rainbow order um <laughs> i think that i don't know if kids really are aware of that today but that seems to be this universal kind of knowledge that my peer group all shared was like this notion of rainbow order and it was like very rigid like no one like no one really questioned it um you know, everybody kind of, it was given. Like, everybody knew what Rainbow Order was, you know. Well, it's so funny that you say that, because I'm thinking back. I mean, this is like protocol, like fourth, fifth, I think fourth grade. We all made our rainbows. And if you, you had, everyone had their stripes in the right in the right order. Right. I mean, rainbow, yeah. yellow, green, blue, purple. Right, everybody right. Everybody knows what Rainbow Order is. Right. And then, of course, like, because the Crayola marker pack came with brown and black, you never really knew what to do with brown and black. <laughs> Right, like right. All, your other, all your other markers will be worn out and like right. barely make a mark. But brown and black were still good to go. You know, but, <laughs> but no one ever used them. So, like, in the potholders, I would, I would, like, you know, get into these different patterns and stuff. And it was just, I was really, I've always been very into pattern and, like, um, repetition and, and just, I think that's the way my brain must work. Um so it was frustrating when, as like a six-year-old or however old I was, coming up against like a lack of a certain color or like, you know, like getting down to the total dregs of the loop bag, you know, where you only have the sort of most threadbare examples of these. <laughs> right. And, you know, I, I was concerned with quality control, you know, and I didn't want to be presenting my mother with less than, you know, adequate potholders. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was just I, I was I had big concerns about it. It eventually it led to my sort of abandoning that craft because, and then every so often my mom would like get it out and try to encourage me. She's like, you know, oh you're bored. I know what you can do. I need potholders, you know, and uh, so. But I, I outfitted her handsomely, so I don't think that you know she was really suffering for lack of potholders ever. Now, what kind of response did you get? Cause, I mean, how old were you when you were making, in the, in the height of your potholder production? Oh, I was really little. I mean, I think that my perception of how young I was is probably off, because I think sometimes we think we're younger when we did things than we really were. Right, because we all think of ourselves as absolute geniuses. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that, like, I was, I mean, I don't know. It had to be not older than, like, 10. It was probably from a period of like 6 to 10 or something because, um, I mean, just remembering the TV shows that were on. Right, you know, yeah. Sort of be that, that period. Um, and then from, from there, from the pad holders, what did you, did you move to something else? Yeah, I believe my next, see, I was, the, I was always, um, always a drawer. Like, I always, I don't even know what the word is. I mean, for someone who draws. But anyways, I always loved drawing uh, ever since, you know, I was a child. And, like, my big thing was, um, 
like I used to like uh, so many kids I used to like to copy like my favorite cartoon characters and stuff like that but I could actually do it like pretty well so but um so I mean I don't know you know sometimes I made things out of drawings like you know and stuff like all like little kids do like paper airplanes and stuff like that but I mean the actual next like kind of formal craft I really remember was um gimp uh at camp um and and i don't know i think i think gimp is a pretty universal name for this stuff but if people don't know it's like this vinyl um lace oh yes the, like, the keychains um, excuse me did you make keychains out of it right yeah like keychains and lanyards because right. there's pretty much nothing you can make out of gimp <laughs> you know that right. has any kind of like function um once in a while, you'd see some book, like your arts and crafts counselor would have some book that had some crazy, you know, gimp concoction that was clearly, like, not done by some kid. You right, know, right. Like, by some MIT engineer or something. I don't know. But um, I loved gimp. Gimp was so awesome, which is really weird because it's actually one of the most tedious uh, crafts, I think, that exists because you're doing the same thing over and over and over again. And it's on such a tiny scale. And um, and I, you know, like, I don't even know. I mean, I'm sure I could still do it, but I have these, like, big sausage fingers. So it's like <laughs> <laughs> I could never get started. There was this, like, hard way that you got started where you thread it through the keychain. You know, once you got going, it was okay. And then, then there was, like, this weird status of, like, how many stitches you knew, you know, and, like, you know, people, like, I mean, not in any kind of formal way, but, you know, there were people who, you know, oh, you know, she can do the box stitch and the circle stitch and the tornado stitch and the butterfly stitch and the diamond stitch, you know. Um, and I I did not have all of those skills. I could do I could do box, I could do circle, and I could do butterfly, but that was pretty much the limit of my uh, gimp acumen. Um, <laughs> But, you know, it was always exciting rummaging through the gimp box to see what colors might be available. And sometimes, I mean, sometimes you got the worst color combos, like, that just were not even appealing at all. But, you know. Well, so, was, I think that's the stuff that you can buy by the school now. Like, yeah, it's funny because, yeah. I mean, this stuff was, like, only available at Arts and Crafts time at the park, you know. Uh-huh. And now it's like you can have, you know, roll around with spools of it in your apartment, you know, I mean, yeah. it's, it's well, really... I, I mean, when I was young, I mean, I think probably, like, both kids, like, I had no concept of, like, commerce, right? Like, I had no idea where GIMP came from. I mean, I assumed it kind of came from, like, I mean, I didn't think it, like, you know, I knew it came from some kind of store, probably, but, like, I didn't know, yeah, like, it was just in this big box. Right, right. cardboard box, right? And it's very kind of, like, hit or miss. I mean, you know, some scraps were just a few inches long while others were many, many feet. You know, you cut a piece off. So, so yeah, the idea that, like, I could go away from camp and get my own gimp in whatever colors I want sort of never really occurred to me, right? It was just kind of this very mystified uh, material. And I think as, as, as so many, like, school supplies and craft supplies for kids really are, it's like, you know, the chalk or, you know new pencils or, like, anything. It's, like, highly coveted yet, you know, like, very unavailable for, like, for you to consume at will. It's always got to be, like, sort of dispensed by some authority figure or whatever. (laughs) Um, 
but you know, I mean, and even now, like I'll be browsing at like craft store and I'll see all the spools of gimp, and I'm like, you know, my heart skips a beat. Like, oh, it's all mine. Like, it could all be mine. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I haven't done gimp for a long time. But maybe I should pick it up. Maybe, maybe you should. Maybe you should. Or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, the last thing I need is like more spools of crap crowding my life. <laughs> I have so much stuff like that. So, <laughs> so from there, did you go move to um, the cross stitch? From I the- did, I did, and um, I remember that I had this teacher. Um, by this time, I had to be like sort of approaching the end of elementary school and moving into junior high so i don't know how old are you at that like 11 12 well it's i think i think you're 12 in seventh grade most kids are 12 in seventh grade um okay well then i i because i started like when i was still in elementary school with some i i used to do um christmas ornaments like they had these tiny patterns with a little frame yeah yeah a little plastic gold frame and you popped it in and Mm -hmm. voila um, so I did a lot of those. Um, heavens no, knows where they ended up. I have no idea. I, I know I gave them to aunts and uncles, you know, as Christmas presents. Um, and then my first big project was, uh, a bird. And, um, I was in seventh grade and, oh no, was I? No, I was in eighth grade. Because Mrs. Keene was 7th grade science, but Mr. Hubley was 8th grade science. And Mr. Hubley taught basically what was some kind of pre-chemistry class for 8th graders, but but had this thing like where like every week we would learn about a new constellation and a new bird, right? And we used the Audubon Society bird book as our guide, right? And he would pass out these... Xerox is these black and white line drawings of the same birds, you know, from the book. And our job was to, like, go research the bird and color the black and white thing and, like, hand it in, right, to, like, demonstrate that we had, like... I mean, it was kind of cool because it was a more interesting way of taking some tests, you know? Right, right. Like, I mean, we couldn't just, like, color it any way we wanted. We had to color it, like, accurately, right, to demonstrate that we knew what bird it was, or, like, that we had looked it up, you know? And so I got really into that. And then on Fridays of every week, we would have this ritual of uh, a slideshow, right? So there would be, and it was a contest, or it was a, yeah, a contest, I guess you would call it, where he would call on someone, and then he would go through slides of constellations and birds, just, you know, randomly, and you would have to identify them, and you would go until you got one wrong. Um, and then, like, another person would go. And I just nailed it. And so every Friday, you know, everybody wanted me to do it because, you know, I could go for the entire class period without making a mistake. <laughs> tray after tray of slides, you know, and hence no one had to do any work. And, <laughs> you know, like, we were rewarded with, like, you know, three musketeers bars or something like that. Um, so I was sort of this, like, hero. Like, I don't know, I'm sure there was someone who resented me, but, like, most of the people were happy that I was, because, like, I was this big nerd, right? Like, that I liked, I, I thought it was so cool, you know, and I'm sure other people definitely did not give 
a darn at all about, you know, birds or like constellations. Um, so my mother had this, um, state bird book of cross stitch patterns. Um, and she had worked on the bald eagle, like the national bird, because my dad has, my dad really loves bald eagles in America and he collects bald eagle stuff. So she made this bald eagle and, but you know, she saw the book and my favorite bird was in the book. Like my favorite bird was the purple finch because growing up my favorite color was purple and I don't know, like purple finches were around our house. You know, it wasn't like some exotic bird. It was like a bird that we saw. Mm-hmm. And um, so I made, I did this cross-stitch pattern of a purple finch and it was kind of like, Definitely like a more adult pattern, you know what I mean? It wasn't impossible or anything or, or even really that difficult, but like definitely wasn't like some kid's pattern. Mm-hmm. And I gave it to Mr. Hubley, my teacher, because, I don't know, because I liked him, whatever kind of weird way he was, he's a very strange man. But years <laughs> and years later, like when I was, the two years, like uh, 2001, 2002, that period where I was living back in Massachusetts, I ran into him at an ATM machine in, like, the town next to where I grew up. And I was like, oh, hi, you know, hello, you know. And he was like, you know, I will never forget you because I still have that beautiful purple finch cross stitch you did hanging on my wall. Wow. Oh, well, that's that's pretty cool, you know. I mean, I I didn't expect that he had thrown it away or anything, but, you know, it was (laughs) nice that that was, like, how he remembered me. Right, right. And um, from then on, I just, you know, doing different things for a while until I sort of, like, developed sort of my own teenage taste or whatever. And, like, clearly it wasn't, like, you know, Disney cross-stitch and, you know, bunnies and stuff and, you know... Oh, I shudder to say this aloud now, but like, he went through this phase, kind of like entirely too old, too. Like, I was in, I think it was also in junior high, I went through this phase of collecting porcelain carousel horses. Oh. I mean, like, <laughs> oh my god. You know, like, I'm, I'm clearly too old at that point to be, like, really into this, but then, there was this, my mother had made me a cross-stitch of a, um, like a rocking horse. That, it was like a carousel horse, but like on rockers. Okay. The way it was done um, by this woman, Teresa Wensler, right? She has this very distinctive style of designs, right? And they're very, very difficult and like involve like, oh, you, you know, you, you make new colors by blending, you know, one strand and one strand or like, you know, the whole pattern might only have five stitches of one color, you know. And I attempted to make one. Well, I did make one. It came out great, actually. Um, Chestnut was the name of the horse. <laughs> and it was like a Christmas horse. And it had this wreath around the neck. And the wreath was really, really hard. Um, but and my mother was really impressed. And of course, they framed it. And I was also proud of it. I forget the one... The one that, that my mother had made for me was named something like Trotter or Dreamer or something like that. <laughs> it was all like yellow and purple. It was like <laughs> so bad. I mean, it was beautiful, but like, oh God, like what was, you know, like, I don't know what I was thinking. So, um, I mean, it probably came from a, like the same gene that like made me go to my friend Paul Sweeney's house for sleepovers where we would design new Care Bears. Um, <laughs> again, 
you know, entirely too old to be doing that. Of course, he went on to became like the captain of the football team, which was interesting. Great guy. Um, so yeah, so you know, then one day, you know, whenever I just kind of like faded out of the crossfit thing for most of my, you know, for the remainder of my teenage years and you know into my twenties. Um, and in the interim, I you know I did other crafts. I did other like projects. I enjoyed kind of like. You know, nothing that I did, like, over and over again, and, you know, nothing that stands out tons, but, and then I, I got, when I returned to Boston from Indiana to the, to Massachusetts, um, I began, my, I began to, like, sort of pick up on the fact that this circle of friends that I had, they did crafts, like, mostly knitting, um, and so, they would invite me to, like, these afternoons of, you know, I was like, oh, you know, I, I used to do that, too, or, like, I know how to to do that, and I've been thinking that, like, maybe there's some way that I can get, that I can, like, make it interesting, or, like, maybe I could try designing my own patterns or something, mm-hmm. so that it would be something that I, think, that I would think was cool, you know, or that, or funny, or interesting, or whatever, and so... I was invited one afternoon to a friend's house where everybody was going to be knit. The girls were all, like, knitting, and the boys were, like, playing PlayStation or something. And, of course, I was cross-stitching. And I just remembered that out of my mouth was, like, oh, wouldn't it be funny if there was, like, a punk rock craft fair? And it was punk rock because um, I had met these people uh, through my band, um, uh, when I was living in Indiana, I had met them on the phone trying to, like, call local bands in each, you know, city that we were going to for help with booking shows. And in Boston, I just became very good friends with the people. And so when I moved back, you know, I sort of had these friends already there. And they were all in bands, too, and, like, very, you know, kind of countercultural, you know, musical people. And what was your band? What was the name of your band? My band was called Pretty Pony. Pretty Pony. <laughs> Yeah. See the the ponies, the influences of the ponies. Yeah, there we go. And and it was a punk rock band. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that like in the broadest sense, it was. I think if you ask some other punks, they you know would probably have a more hardcore specific analysis. I think maybe like post punk, straddling you know new wave, you know kind of. And were you? Did you sing in the band, or were you? Would you? Would it? What yes, was your... I did. I played guitar, and I was the you know the front person. Okay. So I sang, and I I wrote all the lyrics, and um, and I was sort of like the figure head. And actually, I had this reputation among like thirteen year old girls in Bloomington, Indiana, who um, went to like the hippie school, right, where like you could be all weird. Right. <laughs> me on the street and they, they would refer to me as Pretty Pony as if that was my name. They'd say, oh, it's Pretty Pony. Um, which <laughs> no, I, what, what was that like to, to, be, to have 13-year-old girls calling you Pretty Pony? Oh, I loved it. Oh, you loved it? <laughs> yeah, like, like no one who was hip really liked my band very much. It was like all, I mean, capital H hip. I mean, I thought the capital H hipsters were not very cool but like it was all like 18 and younger so we like we had like high school fan base high school kids loved us and then older like 35 and older people loved us because we sort of harkened back to this like late 70s early 80s rock thing right Mm -hmm. 
But, like, all the kids doing, like, their college experimental music all thought we were just ridiculous or whatever because we were just, like, wacky and glam and fun. You know what I mean? But, yeah, oh, I loved my I loved my teenage girl fan base. You now, what did you guys sing about? Um, computers and robots and snacks. <laughs> snacks. <laughs> Wait, he said computers and robots and something else and then sex. Oh, snacks. Yeah. And like, then... You know, so we, we... And we talked about... We had songs about video games. We had a song about uh, this, like, boardwalk where they had, like, cotton candy and stuff. Like, I don't know. We had sort of a, a wide range, but it was always sort of, like, perverted, you know. Somehow <laughs> we would make it dirty. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I... We... we uh, it was very sort of like 80s subject matter in this one way. Um, we'd sing about video games sometimes or um, fiction, like sort of like little story songs that were just, you know, things made up in my head or whatever. And you said you wrote most of the lyrics? Yeah. Did you ever do a craft-related song? You know, I never did do a craft-related song. It's funny that you should ask that because, no, I never did. Not that, Not to my knowledge, no. Well... For your podcast, you should come up with a craft-related song. I should, yeah. That would be really great. Because I can never find... I, I I try to find music that's craft-related just for kicks, you know, on the... Uh-huh. Well, not really for kicks, because I don't think one ever gets a kick out of a craft-related song. Um, but anyway, I, I, you've gone looking for some songs to play from the Podsafe Music Network, and mm-hmm. there's nothing out there. So you would have the corner market, and there'd be tons of podcasters trying to get it, so... That's a really good idea. I'm going to get right on that. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure with all the, you know... You know, push everything aside and only focus on this. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> well I, I have a, you know, you're talking about kind of how you got into, you know, the crafting thing. Now, mm-hmm. how was it, because I know even to this day, there's a stigma if a, a man's knitting or a man's doing crafts. I mean, it's mm-hmm. like, you know, there's like, he becomes a spectacle, you know, where mm-hmm. people, women can knit or do whatever and it's not a spectacle, you know. Right, um, right. But when you're a teenager, I mean, did you kind of craft in seclusion or were you out? Needle pointing where people could see you needle. Or, I mean, uh, not needle point. Uh, doing your cross stitch. I mean, could, did you do it in public? Um, no, I didn't. Um, I generally just did it at home uh, on the couch, watching TV, kind of thing. Did your um, friends know that you did that? I mean, I'm just kind of yeah, trying to get yeah, at. I mean, I think so. were they I mean, supportive I, of it? Well, yeah, I was like always known as like very artistic, right? That was kind of like my reputation growing up in school was like fat kid, class clown, good at art, and really musical because I grew up playing the violin and viola. So people kind of knew that about me. So like I already kind of had like the big sissy quotient already. Like, you know, so like the, the cross-stitch thing, like I would show my friends or whatever what I was working on, um... And it's not like my friends were the biggest bunch of bruisers either. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, so they weren't like, going to the type that would beat you up for, for right. doing, I mean, you know, cross stitch. Really wasn't that much at stake there. Right, um, right. But you know, so people knew that I was like this kind of sensitive, creative person. But but people, you know, I never. Um, it just and it wasn't even a thing of hiding it. It was more that like cross stitch, and, and it, maybe it's something that I'm doing wrong because I'm sl- a slob or something. But like. I don't travel well with cross-stitch. Like, it's not the kind of thing I can whip out, like, you know, waiting for an appointment and just do. It's like, for me, it's more like, 
I have to like kind of spread some stuff out. You know what I mean? It's right. It's something that's best done on a couch for me or sitting like at a table. And um, so it just didn't make that much sense to like be hauling it around with me or whatever. Um, but I, you know, and it was funny the thing, the gender issue. Uh, my mother always liked to comment on um, Rosie Greer, right? You know, right, right. So it's funny that, like, I don't think he's really remembered for his football statistics. I think he's remembered as this big, burly football player who did needlepoint, right? True. And he had that, like, famous Sports Illustrated commercial, right, where he's, like, sitting by the fire and then he holds up what he's working on. Right. And big Sports Illustrated logo. Right. And then needlepoint, or that's what you're supposed to think. I mean, I wonder if he really did that. But, um... So, you know, and, and the thing was always like, well, no one would mess with him, and he does this, and he does beautiful work, and, and, you know, just being told that, like, other men did stuff like that, but but at the same time, I mean, you got to remember, like, what kind of kid I was, and that I wasn't out playing, it's not like I was captain of the football team by day, and, like, secret stitcher at night. <laughs> right, much, right. Like, I was pretty much real girly around the clock. So, <laughs> you know, it wasn't like I was sitting there questioning, you know, gender roles. Like, I was just doing this stuff. Well, and I think it's great that you did that. Because I, I think it wouldn't have been probably, just, it probably wouldn't have been nearly as fun if you're, like, you know, feeling like you can't show anybody what you're working on, you know. Because that's part of the fun of doing projects is right. being able to show people, hey, look sure. what I'm doing. Sure. Yeah. Sure. I mean, it just wasn't that, like, it just never really occurred to me. Like, I've always been, for for as kind of savvy about some things as I am, I'm actually very naive about other things. Like, I didn't even know the village people were gay until, like, really late. <laughs> Way later than I, like, I really should have known. You know, like, I'm gay. Like, I like well after I came out of the closet, I still didn't know the village people were gay. At what point did you figure that out? I mean, what, what, when it dawned? Kind of like, one day I was just kind of like, huh. Like, I thought it was just like this occupational um, sort of representation. And oh, like it was, was maybe kind of just like, part of their, like, their thing is for their entertainers? Well, like, they're, no, well, I thought that, like, each member of the village people was, like, supposed to represent a certain, like, trade. Oh. And, then, <laughs> and then I was kind of like, well, what's that Indian chief doing? And I was like, well, you know, Indian chief. And then I was like, what's that guy in the leather doing? And I was like, oh. <laughs> oh, and I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, I was like, okay, so they so they really are, you know, and it was kind of like, I wasn't, and you know, I guess I was dramatizing a bit there. I wasn't completely that clueless, but I was like, oh, so they really are this thing, and it's not like something other people made up. Like, they're, they're putting that out there, you know. So, um, but yeah, there wasn't, um, I wasn't, really aware that I wasn't this, like, regular guy, you know. I mean, and I'm not even saying that I wasn't a regular guy. Like, to me, I was just whatever. I was just a kid and other, like, everybody was weird, you know. No one had, no one was like, I don't know, no one, like, had anything, like, so great image-wise happening that, that, you know, do, having some hobby would have disrupted. I, mean, I don't know. Well, I think teenage years are, we're all pretty disturbed and confused. <laughs> yeah, know? right. I, I mean, mean I, I think it's, you know, we all have our issues, so, totally. yeah. Totally. And my issues were like, 
I don't even know. My issues were like getting in trouble in school. Like I always got in trouble in class because I had a smart mouth and like, you know, I didn't know when to stop talking and, you know, I was like, you know, always like a joker and stuff like that. Like those were my issues. Uh, so yeah. So, I mean, whether or not I was masculine just really didn't occur to me that much. I did, I was rather aware that I had horrible luck um, asking out girls. Um, so that was, you know, but that was, that was a little, well, it wasn't so much later, but, um, yeah, but my, my mother would, you know, once in a while say something about it, but I don't think it was even really that much of an issue to her. I think I might have asked at some point, like, oh, do you know, do you know any other men who do, like, do you know other boys, I probably said, who, who do this or whatever, but, it never, and it was never really a problem. Well, it sounds like in a way, I mean, I think that's a gift in a way. I mean, because if you would have been worried about it, you wouldn't have probably enjoyed it, you know? Yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely. I'm, I, it's definitely a great, like, I'm so, I cherish that about my life. Like, the fact that, like, I was able to share that experience, like, with my mother and to learn that from her and to enjoy that, like, have that be something that we both enjoyed, um, is so valuable to me. I like, you know, I wouldn't trade that for anything. So, so that is, so if it had been sort of tainted by some kind of shame, that would have been, you know, really disappointing. And I mean, I probably wouldn't have kept at it either. Um, although I do like the idea of like being secretly addicted to, you know, some kind of girly craft when you're like this guy trying to make it in high school. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm really intrigued by, I'm trying to make the leap here from um, the embroidery, you know, like the ponies and so forth to dirty pillows. Mm -hmm. So if you can, if you can uh, explain how you got the idea to um, create dirty pillows and. Well, I think that um, I was always like in college, um, I was always, when I was writing papers and research papers and stuff like this, I had this sort of very, this motif of like, I would always entitle my papers, um, like with a pun, uh, and it was always like, like hypersexual. It was always some like filthy <laughs> pun, right? And then it'd be like a colon, and then more of like a theoretical explication of that type, like of what the paper was about, right? So I would have something like, you know, I don't even know, something really dirty, and then like psychoanalysis in colonial, you know, post-colonial South Asia, you know, like something like very dry and intellectual, but like preceded by something like super nasty, right? So no, how did how did they go over with the professors? Oh, they loved it. Oh, they. <laughs> I was like, the thing is, like, in college, like, I discovered, like, things like TV and movies could be school, right? So, mm-hmm. And I was, like, the pet star student of the English department. I could do... What school did you go to? Indiana University. Okay. I could do absolutely no wrong. You know what I mean? Like, I could turn in a paper two months late and still get an A+. Because, you know, <laughs> my teachers loved me. Because, well, and, and not to say that it wasn't you know, deserved. I was really engaged with the material. I I was, you know, I was very thoughtful and critical and all that kind of stuff. I wasn't so hot with deadlines, but, you know, I think they were excited to have an undergraduate student who was excited by, um, you know, the material. 
and then my mind kind of works that way. Like when I was writing, you know, lyrics for all my songs, and I don't know, I just had this sort of like, I love double entendre. I love like, you know, thinking about, you know, multiple meanings. And of course, my academic background is all about that. Like it's all about like multiple meanings and, and um, oppositional kind of elements, you know, like coexisting like closely. Um, and so I think that just carried over to when I started thinking about doing cross-stitch again, I was like, oh, like, what would make cross-stitch interesting for me? And I was like, God, it would be kind of like, I mean, there's the idea of the feisty old lady, which is this real, like, 80s motif of, like, <laughs> you know, like, the maid on different strokes or, mm-hmm. or, like, you know, different people you see on TV. There's always, like, some old lady that, you know, like, like where's the beef lady, right? She's, like, this old lady, but she's real sassy or something, right? Right. <laughs> so the idea of, like, doing something that is very sort of associated with docile, um, you know, safe things and then you know, making it super dirty or, like, really pervy, which was, <laughs> I thought was, like, hilarious, you know. So, um, you know, I got the idea of, like, okay, well, there's, like, so many sort of naughty words that have, you know, dual meanings. I'm like, <laughs> oh, you know, like, if I make these little quaint, very cute, very adorable, delicate, you know, uh, cross-stitch designs that say, like, I love pussy and has a, you know, a cute little cat on it, you know. <laughs> Like, that's kind of funny, right? Right, right. Like, like you know, Grandma probably wouldn't crank out, you know, this particular design. So, you know, I, I started doing this, and we were working on the bazaar, and I was making more and more of these things. And my mother was just, like, so appalled. Like, it was so funny that, like, you know, my big joke was, like, oh, Mom, you never, you never dreamed I'd use my abilities for evil kind of thing, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like... You know, she and, and we had, uh, I'd never forget one day where um, my grandparents were coming over and I was doing cross-stitch in the, like, in watching TV and my mom was like, oh, Greg, put your cross-stitch away, grandma's coming over. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, like, that is the best thing ever. Like, how often do you hear that, you know? So, you know, and then, so my mom's kind of, like, embarrassed and, like, she's like, I can't believe you're doing this and all this stuff. I mean, not very angry, but, like, but just, just like, yeah. she's really embarrassed. And so the first bazaar comes and goes, and I cleaned up. You know, like, the pillows went quick. I made a lot of money. So, Like, know, how much would one of these pillows go for? Oh, God, I undercharged so bad. I think I charged, like, 15 bucks or something. Oh, my gosh, that probably took you how long to do one? Um, at that time, it took me probably, like, four or five hours. Wow. So, <laughs> so you were making per hour. <laughs> that wasn't too much. No, no, no. Yeah. No. Um, and of course I had no concept of like pricing. And stuff. You were just thrilled that people were buying these things. Yeah. I was like, I couldn't imagine that anyone would really want to. So like I'd, I had priced them so low, but so the fact, you know, so the fact that I like had done really well at the bazaar and, you know, my parents came and they saw like how crazy packed it was. Um, and then, you know, that I actually made money and people wanted to have, my mom was on me like, all the time to be making more pillows when I got after that. She'd be like, Greg, it's a snowy, slushy day out. Um, you know, why don't you watch a couple movies and uh, work on your pillow? <laughs> and so I've got my mom, like, encouraging me. So the next year, so for the second year, the bizarre, my mom gets in on it, and, like, I made these kits, right, like these little 
kids to do your own dirty pillow. And she was like, we can use my vacuum sealer for uh, to, to seal the bag. I was like, okay. So, like, the two of us are sitting at the kitchen table, like, assembling these kits, right? And, you know, they have the words, like, cock and pussy all over them. And, like, my mom's, like, helping me. And I was like, whoa, this is so... Like, I would step back in my mind and be like, oh, so bizarre. Like, this is really weird. You know? I guess it's kind of cool. And, like, meanwhile, you know, in the basement, I had, like, this big table where I would work on my magnets that I made. And so I had stacks and stacks and stacks of porno magazines. Because that's what I used to cut up to put in my magnets, right? You know, and like... Did she help you with those, too? No, she didn't help me with those. No. You know, like, my parents would walk by this, like, every time they went in and out of the garage, like, get in their car or something. And it was just like, our whole family became so desensitized to, like, you know, like, really hardcore pornography. Like, it was just like, you know, just this thing that was just... You know, and no one really seemed to pay it much attention. And No, did gr- Grandma ever find out what you were doing? No. One no. day my father asked me to put my artwork away because some company was coming over. Yeah. Okay. Um, he's like, we'll just make sure it's out of sight, you know. But, um, and it was so funny because for as smart as I thought I was, um, I would get super squeamish if either one of my parents, like, would refer to, like, my pillows or anything and say what was on them. Oh, because you just thought that was like you didn't want to hear them say those yeah, words? right, right. And, you know, here I thought I was all subversive, but, like, I basically would block my ears and go, la, 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 <laughs> when my parents would say it. So, I mean, that's how, that's how like, edgy I was. <laughs> <laughs> You're edgy except for when mom and dad are saying the, well, the naughty words. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, so, from, and, and, do you still, you, so it sounds like you're kind of on a hiatus from uh, making your dirty pillows. Well, um, I am, make, I got, I just got one, I just got a pattern from a store actually that is so dirty, but it's not supposed to be, but um, it's like based on this children's rhyme and it had a really funny image, but I guess there's a children's rhyme and uh, it starts out, ride a cock horse to Banbury Cross. And I guess it's something about like Queen Elizabeth taking some pilgrimage to see some cross or something, right? But that's but the pattern just has this bizarre picture of a monkey riding the back of a rooster that has like leopard spots and like there's palm trees and it's like really whimsical and kind of strange. But all it says is all the only text is ride a cock horse to Banbury Cross. And I'm in the, the store and it's made up and it's on the wall and I was like this is like the dirtiest, filthiest thing I've seen forever. Like, it's excellent. So I like bought it. And I, I need to work on it because I bought a really pretty piece of like hand dyed fabric to do it on. But, um, and then I'm also making, I'm like trying out these, uh, keychain sized pillows. And I've become really into, um, really fascinated with pixel art and the relationship between, uh, or the potential relationship between like, digital images and um, cross-stitching because cross-stitching basically is like, you know, uh, image made up of tiny little squares, just like any kind of digital image on a computer screen. So, um, I, you know, I, I had done some like Pac-Man and Miss Pac-Man things because I love Pac-Man so much. Well, I love Miss Pac-Man so much. I like Pac-Man too. But, um, but now kind of like taking the dirty pillows to that direction but using like you know, like making these things with like Super Mario Brothers, 
like sort of portraying the Super Mario Brothers being in love, you know, so kind of taking this, like combining the, 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 um, you know, this new fascination I have with digital, uh, imagery and it, and, and translating it into like cross stitch and then also still keeping it dirty by having, you know, Mario and Luigi engaging in, you know, different acts. So, um, <laughs> That's kind of like where I'm at right now, just trying out some new stuff. But so you're definitely going to keep it all X-rated. Uh, just not all of it. No, just no. changing. You're changing medium a little bit. Yeah, maybe yeah. a little bit. I mean, keep I, it dirty. I always have my X-rated stuff. Right. But um, <laughs> you know, I'm also I also sometimes do some like cute stuff or whatever, just like that's nostalgic or whatever. Um, but you know, still mostly my own. Stuff like I would never, I don't sort of sell anything that wasn't my own design. Um, but uh, yeah, so but th- like I'm, for instance, at the San Francisco Bazaar, I'm going to be sharing a table with um, this woman Shannon Oki, who uh, is the like head organizer of the Cleveland um, edition. And she's great, but like, yeah, like both of us kind of have to be like running around in a sort of administrative capacity. So neither of us are like, you know, we're not going to have a full table. We're right, just, right, because you, you have know. to kind of be running things. Yeah, and actually, this coming year in December for the big LA one, I don't even think I'm going to be a vendor at all um, because, you know, it's just to the point where like we're getting so big, um, just physically, you know, so many people and stuff that I really need to be available to, like, put out fires and troubleshoot. You know, where it's like, okay, it's probably not very responsible of me to just act like I can just sit at a table all day or whatever. Right, right, especially if it's your, your thing. Well, can you tell us how this, I, I know I don't want to take up your entire evening here, but um, it started, you started in 2001 in Boston. Yes. yes. And how many vendors did you have that first year? Oh, God, maybe, like, 20. Okay. Maybe even less. Um, it was all word of mouth, very kind of, very ham-handed. I mean, like, we had, like, six round tables and then some others, like, rectangle tables. And where like, where were you? Like, where? We were at a VFW hall in Somerville, Massachusetts. Okay. <laughs> okay. And then, and then what happened the next year? Well, the next year we got, well, the thing is we got, it was so packed the first year um, because we happened to get this like mention in the calendar section of the Boston Phoenix, which is like the free paper. Um, the next year became more formalized. We actually rented um, some tables, so we'd have all, um, you know, consistent, you know, all the same tables. And, and it was, again, very, very successful. We had more people join the organizational sort of force. Um, and it was, you know, it was great. It was in the same space. And the... Third year is when I moved to, well, no, no, I had actually moved to Atlanta. I remember I came back because I'm like midway through the, through like planning and stuff is when I moved to LA. And then I came back for, to do the, the bazaar. And then the following years when I started the 2003 was the first one in LA. And then I, that was really successful from an external point of view, but it was a nightmare from an organizational point of view. Um, and then 2004 is when Cleveland joined. Like, Shannon had been a vendor in Massachusetts. And okay. she had moved to Cleveland and was like, I want to do one here. And we're just like, oh, yeah, it was great. I mean, 
and because I mean we we knew her and knew that she would do a cool job with it and not have it be some lame thing. You know what I mean? Like, right, right. That you know she knew what it was about, and you know she's a, that woman has more energy. Oh, I can't even believe it. Um, and then 2005 was you know all three cities again and just got we got so much bigger we jumped like exponentially in size from last year to this past year um and there were some growing pains and we're actually scaling back sort of um for 2006 uh because the space we got was so huge that we sort of like used up as much of it as we could on this sort of idea that like we're paying for it so we, you know but it actually ended up sort of causing problems because the the balcony of the facility was sort of like less finished and it was kind of like there were some traffic flow problems and stuff. so we're actually like eliminating the balcony this year which means it'll be like fewer vendors able to participate but that actually is a plus from a curatorial point of view because you know the fewer slots there are the sort of you know, it sort of has this cachet. Of, right. You know, I don't want to be exclusive, but at the same time, I don't want, I don't know, you know, you don't want to just let in everybody, um, which sounds terrible. That sounds like an awful thing, but like... Well, no, I don't think it is, because I I, I um, used to do art shows, and well, it was more like a craft show, glorified craft show, because we don't have anything in the school in Grand Rapids. <laughs> <laughs> but I was weaving, and I, at the height of my weaving, uh, chenille scarves and all kinds of stuff. And I, I mean, it's like I would bust my rear, stay up, you know, after my day job. And I got um, a table, and I got the early set up with my sisters, and I was all excited for my first show. Mm-hmm. And wouldn't you know it, someone comes in with beanie babies at the next table. Oh, my and God. And you just want to, like, die, you know, because yeah. people are swarming around her table, and who wants to pay you know, $35, $40 for a chenille scarf, which actually is quite cheap when you consider yeah. how many hours I spent making each one. Um, right. So it's, it's, so I think you you really do have to be selective. And, and can you tell us, like, for people out there, they're like, oh, that sounds so cool, and how do I get it? How can the people who listen be a vendor? They want to apply to be a vendor. What, what, what do they need to do? Well, um, we have, we do all of our stuff online. Um, it's just, it simplifies things. So, um, bizarrebizarre.org is the website and there from there there are links to the different cities right so like if you live in you know whatever city or, or you decide that that's the one you want to do you know you follow the link there and each sub site or whatever has its own uh, like usually has its own um, mailing list we're trying to maybe combine them but for right now each city has its own mailing list so the best thing is to log on to the site and sign up for the informational mailing list. We don't send out a lot of junk, but that's how we notify. That's how we start putting the word out. Like I'm, and actually this year we're going to be doing the application process much much earlier. So um, the application process is going to be within the like by the end of May, pretty much for all of the show, for every venue released. You know, for every men, every venue. Um, I don't know what Boston and Cleveland's plans are. Okay, but for California. Yeah. We okay. um because we're in the same space again and we already have our date and stuff. Um December sixteenth, by the way, for LA. Okay. Cleveland and Boston, we haven't booked those dates yet. But um 
Yeah, so you get the you sign up on the info list, you get the notification through there. I mean, I suppose you could keep your eye out for flyers on the street because we'll have those, but like it's not entirely reliable, you know. Um, and then it's an online application process, and you have to have. Um, it's nothing terribly fancy. It's just it's mostly information, and we ask for. Um, we do require one photo of your work, but we I think allow you to upload up to three photos. And um, and what types of things are you looking for? Um, I think things that are well made, yeah, things that really sort of look very polished, or you know, if that's I understand some things look intentionally not like that, but you know, things that are well crafted, things that are I think thought provoking, or maybe um, I, it's so easy for me to say, oh, unique things, but. Um, Maybe I, I really like things that take a traditional kind of format or technique and do something unusual with it, right? So, like, if you do, if you knit, but you knit something like, I don't even know, like a beer cooler. I have no idea. You know what I mean? But like, right, right. You're doing something that's different, not right. that you've seen at every other art show around the country. Right. And, and, and things that are, um, I think things that are, like, Humorous are pretty good. Um, some people do, you know, more serious, straight-up kind of crafts, but maybe use unusual materials. Um, and, like, the choice of materials might be what's kind of, like, thought-provoking about them or, you know. Um, just uh, something that would, like, set you apart from from other people. And, it, and sometimes it's not always that, too. I mean, sometimes, like, maybe someone has something... That's a little more out there, but there's someone else with something similar that's much more like well put together or, you know, that, that I think is like, you know, visually more striking or, or something like that. Would so, you say, are, are most of your vendors, um, you know, people that maybe go against the grain or not your, you know, stereotype of, you know, uh, people you'd see at a regular craft show? Right, right. Well, the thing is too though, okay, one thing that I think is, people really miss the boat on when they're filling out the application is I don't think people really take the opportunity to tell me what they're doing. Like so many people, and I mean, this sounds really awful. I don't mean to be, you know, whatever, but so many people are really lazy with their application where they just sort of like in a sentence, not even like a grammatically correct sentence, describe what it is that they make, like without really telling me who they are. Like I think because we ask for a description of what it is that you do and for a brief biography of yourself. And that could be, you know, chronological or just sort of a snapshot or whatever. But it's like, I'm surprised that people don't take more time to make that interesting because it's like, I'm reading all of these. Right, and it sounds like if you're intrigued by who they are, you're more likely to say, hey, yeah, we have a table for you. Right, and and also like, the tone, like the tone, like some people, I mean, okay, it's hard to tell from like an online application anything about a person, but, you know, if they're so short with what they're saying, it's like they can't even be bothered to like, you know, write something warm or whatever, you know, it's like <laughs> I'm much more likely to, you know, pick someone who writes something like honest or like something sort of more descriptive than someone maybe who has a great product or a real glossy photo, but just says, like, description, scarves. You know, like, give me a little more than that. Like, tell me what's, like, different about them or tell me what's great. Or so, You know what I mean? It's just, like, it's more like, 
an attitude. Because the thing is, too, that, like, everybody, since crafting has gotten so huge now, it's like everybody is so beyond hip, you know, and everybody's too cool for school. And it's like, that's not what I want, you know? Like, I don't want, like, the cool kids necessarily. I mean, yeah, there's some really cool people, but, like, you know, I don't want a bunch of attitude kind of, like, fashionistas who, you know, are all about having the right clothes and stuff. Right, <laughs> I mean, right. I'd rather just have, like, some nice people. Right, you're not looking to recreate the snobbery of high school. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, definitely. So, um, and just looking for, like, a real variance. So, like, I would say if you're going to knit something, you better make sure it's, like, <laughs> its own thing. And then if you're going to make handbags, like, they should be good quality because we get more handbag and more knitting applications than anything. And then T-shirts, I would have to say, come in a close third. Um, and I'm actually very hesitant about T-shirts because they don't seem... I mean, unless you do the silk screening and stuff yourself, it doesn't, they don't always seem very crafty. Yeah, well, what about... I mean, how much does it cost for a table? This year, it is going to cost um, two hundred dollars. Okay, and that's for like a two day show. Nope. Um, no, that, one day. That's for a one day show. Okay. And you get a table and two chairs and a ten by ten foot space. And it um, sounds like you get a lot of traffic through these. Oh yes, 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 yes. Like a ton. Um, we have had consistently lines out the door um, and long waits to get in. Wow. Ever since we started, which is. To me, I mean, that's kind of my proudest moment is that, like, you've got, like, we had a packed, like, solid column of people waiting, like, you know, down the block um, for, like, a good two hours. You know, people weren't waiting two hours to get in, but, I mean, there was that heavy of a line for two hours, you know, like, this year. Um, We peaked out at, like, just, we just hit 3,000 people, and um, I know in Boston... You know, people wait like an hour, hour and a half to get, you know, well, not maybe not that long, but I mean, you know, they wait a considerable amount of time considering like what weather is like in mid-December in Boston, right? The fact that people are waiting online in the freezing cold to go to a craft show. Yeah, that's unheard of. You know what I mean? It's like we get these kind of like rock concert crowds and like the patrons are great. Like we have such a diversity of uh, patrons and everybody is like so fun you know what i mean like everybody like has a great attitude that comes to the thing you know and people it started to be this thing that people really look forward to and as they do they do their holiday shopping and like they they know what then you know they've researched their vendors online and know what tables they want to hit and it's just you know it makes me so proud to to know that people are having fun because that was my a number one priority in the first place was to just to have fun, you know, to have a space where like people are showing off the kind of like fun stuff that they do in their free time. And, you know, for people to like, I don't know, just have a good time. Like I, that's what I primarily want it to be about. So are you looking to expand this to other cities? Yes, I am. I am. The difficulty with that is like, it's, but like, I'm not the best money manager there is. You know, I'll say that right out. Like, this year in L.A. was the first year we even broke even, right? Like, I usually take a personal loss, like, out of my own money 
to put this on. And that's fine. Like, it's something that I love doing, so I don't care. But in order to, like, expand into cities that I don't live in, right? I mean, right. in cities where I don't have someone that I know, you know, intimately, like, in that city, I would have to go there, like, a like probably more than once to do it. And it's just like, I don't have that kind of money. I did I did want to get into your book, of course. Um, oh, yeah. At what point did, were you, did you pitch the idea or did someone come to you and no, say, hey? I met my agent because I was working at my table and this guy comes up to me, introduces himself, says, I'm a literary agent and I think that this would make a fabulous book. And, of course, I'm in the middle of, like, 10 million things. There's all these people surrounding me. I'm trying to, like, collect money. And I'm just like, yeah, whatever. Like, in my head, I'm like, oh, okay, I'll take this Quacks card and just, like, throw it away. <laughs> so, so I, like, put it in my pocket. I, like, found it at the bottom of a bag of stuff, like, later. And then, like, after the New Year, I called him. And because I had, and I, well, before I called him, I actually did some research online to try and see if he was legit or whatever. And it turns out he was, you know, so... I called him, and then we talked about, you know, how it would make a great book, and I was, I I love writing, but it was never something I had imagined myself doing, you know, professionally. Um, I'm not sure that I do it professionally yet, even, <laughs> but... Um, well, you're further than most people. You're published, yeah, okay, you know. That's true. So, um, yeah, we talked about it, and he, you know, used whatever his publishing acumen was, and... Um, got Viking, you know, slash Penguin interested, and uh, within, like, you know, a week, we had a deal, and I set off to work on it, and it was really amazing. I mean, it's one of the reasons I love L.A., because, like, where else does that happen? But, um, you know, I like to say I was, like, discovered, like, Lana Turner. <laughs> but, but, I mean, I really was. I mean, it was, like, it, like, fell in my lap. Like, it was such a, you know a crazy stroke of good luck. And I mean, not to say that, like, I hadn't worked hard to cultivate that thing, but it was just, like, this unexpected sort of result of of hard work in another area, you know what I mean? Because it's not like I had this dream of being a writer and then was, like, then an agent approached me, you know what I mean? It was like I was doing other things and I had never even thought about writing a book. Right, right. So, yeah. Well, I I like how it's set up with the question and answer format and the projects and and what you should you can listen to or or watch. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> and these are most of the people in here. It sounds like they're they're all friends of yours. They're people that have been associated with Bizarre Bazaar. Yeah, they're all people who have been vendors at the bazaar at some point. Um, and you know, friends uh, to not all. I wasn't friends with all of them. Um, you know, beforehand, but it was a. Uh, it was great. I mean, I loved that aspect of it. The whole, my whole goal for the book was, okay, to have, you know, yeah, the projects. I think the projects are great, but also to have, like, really have the people's personality come through because that's what's so cool about Bizarre Bizarre, right? I mean, that's kind of the whole shebang right there is that people's stories, people's unique experiences, uh, you know, just like I tell these wacky stories about like growing up and doing crafts or like d- different things that I associate with crafts or like memories. I mean, everybody has their own memories um, of how they got into this stuff and like what inspires them and what they think about and what TV shows they like to watch and all this stuff. And I was really happy that I got to capture that 
um, you know, in the Q and A's. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I I I wanted the book to be ab- about more than just about a how to. You know what I mean? I really wanted it to be about sort of a why, like a why to. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's funny too. The the photos you have the mug shots of everybody, <laughs> like yeah. like everyone's being arrested. You know. Right. Well, I mean, that was just kind of like... Was it your idea? It was, but I was like... I mean, it's not like... I mean, that's a pretty popular convention to use mug shots. Well, not for craft books, though. Well, okay. Yeah. yeah. But, um... <laughs> I don't know. I was just like, oh, well... Because the thing is, I wanted to have a picture of each person at the beginning of their chapter, but um, I didn't have... Like, I could... There was no way since everybody lives in different places I could coordinate them all to see the photographer I was using. So it was up to me to take those pictures. And I was like, I'm not a photographer. So I was like, oh, what gimmick could I add to the photo that would make the sort of crappy quality black and whiteness of it look intentional? So that's why I came up with the mugshot. Wow. Well, that's pretty creative because well, it, it worked. It worked really well. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was like, if I tried to do like these nice portraits or something, it would just look really corny because I, A, I'm not a photographer. I don't have any kind of lighting equipment. And, you know, it's just going to be reproduced in black and white. So I was like, okay, what could go with that, you know? Do you have a favorite project? Obviously, you probably like your project in the book. Um, one, of your, one of your uh, dirty pillow projects. Um, <laughs> but do you, do you have an, an, any other favorite project? Or would that be put you in an awkward position since you probably don't want to pick a favorite? Oh, no, I'll pick. You'll pick, okay. <laughs> well, my friend Simone has that really simple hat pattern. Oh, yeah, yeah. So we kind of, like, were talking about, um, em- like, the embellishments, and I... It's a knitted hat you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. And I came, like, I sort of distilled, like, I didn't invent it by any means, but, like, I sort of came up with a knitting pattern uh, equivalent of that Space Invader, right? So, like... You know, and so she put it into that hat, and I, I actually have that hat, and I love it. I love that hat. And I played I Space Invader so much as a kid. Yeah, I know. I, I love that that game, too. And I, I never wear that hat because, like, one, I don't want to ruin it, but two, I, I live in L.A. Like, what would I need a wool, a wool hat for? But I love it. Like, I cherish <laughs> it, you know? And, um... Other projects like Emily Arkin, her playing cards, I really love. I mean, it's just like to to participate in the making of those from start to finish. It's just so great because it's so like sort of a great combo of like old style kind of by hand stuff and like using the technology at your disposal, like Xerox machines and computers, um, which I'm real into. Like I'm real into that combo. Um, what other ones? The the vinyl zippered coin purse, uh, Alison Simonian. She had done this sort of more machine. She has a professional machine that will work with that material, the vinyl. Mm-hmm. But I asked her. I said, "Well, could you? Is there a way we could try to do a hand one, hand hand sewn for the book? Because you know, like I don't like a. I don't want people to screw up their sewing machines." But then, like most people, you know, people might not even have a sewing machine. And the way she did it was so, like, I'm not sure how much of it is captured in the photograph, but the the, the samples that she sent me are so beautiful because they have this kind of Frankenstein-like look to them mm-hmm. with the sort of, like, hand stitching and the the sort of unevenness of it all. Um, 
and I absolutely love vinyl. It's like I love anything, you know, that anything that could like incorporate glitter, you know, I am crazy for. So, you know, vinyl is shiny and kind of like synthetic and like, I don't know, it's really fun and poppy. Um, other projects. The Anarchy Soap, I love. I mean, we, Mary Jo's a good friend and she lives in LA. We hang out a lot. And, um, she, you know, she was making soap and we had actually originally started out making another kind of soap, like doing these like citrus, slices mm-hmm. and and I really wanted to do the soap because it's such a great project but we were both kind of like oh this isn't really that edgy you know like we're like this isn't really that like out there you know it was cool the technique was really neat but the end result and then I was like oh like in the, using the exact same technique I was like ooh we can make these anarchy symbol soaps and we and we you know and uh so we came up with how to do that, and those, I mean, came, I think they came out beautiful. I actually used them all. <laughs> but um, those, I thought, were beautiful. The the chapter with the craft tote bag, oh, that tote bag is great. It's such a great project, also because it's so modifiable. The dimensions of the tote bag are completely incidental. It can work, you know, it'll work basically with any, like, any size you want. Which I love. And I love that, like, a lot of the projects in the book are very, they're customizable. Like, I really didn't intend for them to be so fancy that, like, only, you could only sort of do the exact one you saw in the book. Like, the whole point was that, like, um, to really, the, the postcards were an excellent example of that. To really make it your own, to really be able to, to vary it, you know, and come up with different versions. I thought that, um, Dana Berkowitz, her postcards are so beautiful. She's such a gifted person when it comes to, like, visuals and, you know, assembling stuff. And, um, like, there was a great project that actually, like, totally required you to customize it. You know what I mean? Um, so so I just loved all seeing the different projects and, and doing the research and having people sort of reveal to me, like, the headspace that they're in when they do crafts and finding out like what I had in common with people and how, and also how I differed from people in my process and just great, really great stories and really great personalities. It was such a, a real gift to be able to do that book. I it was really great. Well, and it also gets into the whole art versus craft thing too. Mm-hmm. That's a, a question. And, and how do you answer that question for yourself? For readers who might be cur- or listeners who might be curious. Yeah, I really should have something better prepared for this one. I always forget. But uh, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think that, like, craft, there are definitely, like, things that are crafts, like embroidery or cross-stitch, any kind of needlework or, like, like woodwork or something like that. They're definitely, in and of themselves, craft techniques. I think that there's, like, this narrowing gap between art and craft as you sort of investigate possibilities of of um, format as, like, critique, right? So right. Like, by that, I mean, and I don't mean to toot my own horn, but, like, what I do with uh, my gay porno magnets, right? It's, like, the format is, like, this magnet, right, a refrigerator magnet. And the refrigerator is kind of, like, the epicenter of sort of, like, the nuclear family in some senses, right? Right. But it's, like, at the... It's at the core of the kitchen. It's something that the whole family is. It's also a space of communication where we put things on the fridge with magnets to, like, 
talk to family members or display like things that we're proud of and stuff like that. So when you have something that is so anti the family as like a concept of, you know, anti the nuclear family and, you know, uh, pose posits a sexuality that's non-reproductive and like is really dirty and like does not sort of like traditionally belong anywhere near the home. It comes from like the city, from the gutter, you know, all this stuff. And then you make it into a magnet and it goes on the fridge. I mean, like there, there is like, uh, a clash, mm-hmm. right? That, like, <laughs> at that point, a craft sort of becomes art, right? Because you're using the format itself as a critique. Right. And you're also making a statement that maybe right, gluing right. some. Um, so I think that that is, um, that is where a lot of people are, are sort of, Bridging that gap by like when they use crafts to 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 maybe explore different themes or to to bring outside you know sort of far away remote kind of themes into this safe or once safe space you know like crafts are have always been seen as being pretty harmless right which is you know is fine but I think it's interesting when you can use a meat like. Uh, a medium that no one could really object to, to highlight, you know, things that might be, you know, unsafe. And I mean, I guess I'm being a little dramatic by that term, but I mean, that might be shocking or, or it might just be fun or it might be like mischievous, you know. Um, again, the dirty pillows, I mean, by, by having sort of these, um, abject sort of inappropriate, uh, imagery placed on a pillow. I mean, placed on something that like goes in the home is comforting. Is something you're supposed to touch. You know, I mean, it kind of it has, takes on a different character, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if I just if I drew a picture of that same thing and put it in a frame on a wall, it would be very different, sort of statement wise, right? Than the fact that it's on a like a tactile, non-threatening like soft object, you know. <laughs> so. I, I'm just interested in those questions, and it's like I can get really nerdy and really kind of you know esoteric and intellectual about this stuff, um, which I think is great. You know, I, I mean, I don't expect everybody to sort of look at the things on that level or right. in the same way, but like I'm, I'm very like just really interested in like how you know how much that crafting occupies this sort of like this domestic space and how like a lot of people like myself are are not the traditional subjects of craft, right? We're right. Not, we're not the traditional agents of crafting, right? Um, where we've gone out into the world and, and, like, sort of become these other people whose very sort of uh, lives and, and actions and practices are at odds with the traditions that taught us crafting, right? But, like, that doesn't erase, like one doesn't erase the other. And I think that's kind of an interesting part to highlight about this whole sort of movement, right? It's like, I know, like for instance, I I know porn stars in LA who knit, right? Like, so like, <laughs> the fact right. that like, they're porn stars doesn't erase the fact that they learned, they had this like special time doing something traditional with their family and the fact that they did that doesn't erase the fact that they're like porn stars. I mean, it's like those multiple 
sort of practices and identities can coexist within the same subject. And like, it's just, you know, I think that it's a way of like re-including, like the sort of bizarre, bizarre ethic is a way of like re-including these sort of lost souls, as it were, you know, it doesn't mean just because you've gone off in this other direction that's so not about what these crafts are normally about doesn't mean that you can't participate. And I mean, this whole dirty pillow thing has really allowed me to like, you know, I mean, my mother and I have always been close, but like, it's allowed us to like get back a lot of that like special time that we had when I was a little kid. Right. And I mean, I think that's really nice. Like it's, it's, it's fun. Like we'll go, to the CrossFit store together, you know, and like, yeah, while our plans for the end result are like dramatically different, it's like, <laughs> I love that we can share that. You know? Yeah, well, I noticed you dedicated your book to her, so this yeah. is obviously, she's, she's, you know, you, you uh, obviously value that, what she taught you and yeah. your relationship with her. Yeah. And there's one other thing, uh, one other direction, and I know you did, t- you know, we touched on this very briefly at the beginning, and I don't know how comfortable you are. I can edit this question out if you're not comfortable with it, but, um, you know, I, in 2005, as you mentioned in the, in the acknowledgments of your book, that you were, um, you know, diagnosed with a brain tumor, mm-hmm. which I was kind of startled as I'm reading along. I'm like, oh, my goodness, you know, and then I just kind of kept reading. I'm like, okay, he's okay. I think he's okay because he's still writing this, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, how are you now? I'm great. Yeah, um, so you came to... I just passed the year anniversary of my surgery. Oh, congratulations. So you're, Thank you. You've, it's been a year. And everything, you know, looks good. I still have, like, I stopped walking with my cane maybe a month and a half ago. Um, so I'm funny. I, I, I wonder what people think of me when they see me walk because uh, I think that I look drunk sometimes, like, because I kind of stumble sometimes or I'm kind of just, like, off balance. And that's like this uh, sort of remnant of the the surgery, and you know, and it's part of also ditching the cane, right? Like when you have the cane, you sort of have three legs. And right, right. So you have to get used to walking right. with two so, again. Um, that's kind of funny. I mean, I, I have no idea what people think. And then um, just you know, feeling stronger, and uh, my new thing is like rejoining the land of like social people because. For most of 2005, I was, like, at home, you know, alone, you know, and it was... Were you in L.A.? Yeah. Okay. And it was, um, you know, important that I rest and heal and stuff like that, but it, after a year, it's like, okay, enough. I'm, I, I'm 30, I'm a 30-year-old young man. I don't need to be going to bed at 9 o'clock on a Friday night, like... Right, you know? right. And that's kind of the weird thing about crafting, too, is that, like, I have the hobbies of, like, an 85-year-old woman, so... <laughs> You don't want to. You don't want to live your not entire life like an eighty-five-year-old woman, though, right? Right. 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 Well, I, I'm curious about just, and I don't know. You know like I said, you can say any mo- at any point if you don't want to talk about this anymore. But um, I want to be respectful of what you're comfortable with. Um, but I'm, but I'm curious about your. At what point did you discover? Because in in your book, you describe it as a golf ball-sized tumor. Yeah. How did you um, know that you had? I mean, how did you find out you haven't had that? Well, I. Spent a really arduous nine weeks in Massachusetts over the winter uh, working with my photographer. I mean, not arduous. He's uh, because of him, because I was sick. Oh, okay. I absolutely love my photographer, Joe Tannis. He's brilliant, incredibly generous with his time and creative spirit. Let me just say that. The reason that nine weeks was arduous was because I was getting sicker and sicker and, like, had all these, like, 
apparently unrelated symptoms and was like, I felt like I was going crazy because I was like, like all this stuff seemed to be sort of not shutting down exactly, but like screwing up in my body at the same time. And I'm like, this isn't like, right, like something's going on. But due to my insurance, like I had to like, I could only go to the emergency room back in Massachusetts, right? I didn't have like the way my insurance worked. I could only, you know, go to their stuff in oh, LA or whatever. And so I'm getting like more and more anxious and I'm tired all the time and I'm feeling like crap. And like I'm, you know, arguing with my folks because I'm supposed to be helping them pack up to get ready to move the following summer. And like I'm so weak and I'm so like, I don't know what's wrong and I'm having trouble even expressing what's wrong. That like they're, they they think I'm just kind of being like lazy or whatever. We get you know eventually they they realize I'm really sick, but um, feeling bad about myself because I'm I'm so lethargic and like feel like crap all the time and I don't know why and I think it's like psychosomatic and I'm just thinking that like I'm depressed or whatever and um, so things start to get really bad and uh, so I go to back to. Uh, I want to say Bloomington, that's where I went to college. Back to Los Angeles and um, see the doctor and I'm basically told that, like, I have a head cold and congestion is probably making me dizzy. And I was having, like, serious, serious vertigo. And um, two days later, I'm, like, at, with Mary Jo, did the soap. We're at the movies, like, going to go to the movies. And I get out of the car, and I just, like, fall down. Oh, my goodness. And then, like, I got up and, like, fell right down again because I had zero sense of, like, up and down and stuff. Oh, my goodness. all of a sudden, like, I mean, it had been building, but, like, it really reached its peak then. And so she was like, that's it. We're going to the emergency room right now. And I was like, okay. So we go, and, like, you know, I make my dramatic, staggering entrance into the emergency room, and... They get me, you know, pretty much squared away in a bed and observing me and this and that. And, uh, you know, I'm there for about a day and and they're going to do a CAT scan just for whatever reason. They don't normally do it, they said, but they were just going to check it out. And uh, then the following morning, I'm supposed to go um, in for some really invasive kind of GI exam where like some camera is supposed to go down my throat. It's really awful sounding. Uh, When the, the doctor runs up, the one of the ER doctors and says that like they found um, a mass on my brain from the CAT scan. I was like, a mass. Oh my god. I was like, do you mean I have a tumor? And they're like, yeah. And they're like, and we're taking it out tomorrow morning. Like, you know, because it was considered emergency surgery. Oh so, my like, goodness. It's not like okay, you've got a tumor, let's think about some strategies or something. It was like, okay, you've got a tumor, we're taking it out right this minute. You know. Oh my goodness. So because it had really started to, um, it had was like sort of like choking my cerebellum. It was wrapped around it, but then it started digging into my cerebellum, and that was like when everything started to go really haywire. Oh, my like, God. Like my taste buds were all screwed up. I couldn't swallow anything because I forgot how to swallow. I was having oh my goodness. digestive problems. And, then, and so when was this, when you're being told, oh, by the way, tomorrow you're having surgery? Of, it was like February 27th. Of 2005. Right. Holy crap. And um, and then, you know, I had to call my mom, and I was like, Mom, don't get mad. <laughs> like, oh, that's a, that must be the most horrifying phone call a mother can, I mean. I feel so bad. But, like, I, of course, I hadn't called her because I didn't want her to worry. Right, right. Because I thought I was just in the hospital. Well, especially if you don't know what's going on. Right, know? right. And then, and then, like, 
to call her and tell her, not only have I been in the hospital for like 36 hours without telling her, but, oh, I have a brain tumor on top of it. Oh, my goodness. You know, like she was, oh, God, I can't even, she was like on the next plane and like stayed with me for a month while I was in intensive care and all this. It was amazing. But just the whole experience of like, that that whole experience was so absolutely unreal. I mean, it was all too real in many senses, but it was just, Oh, God. Is that one of those surgeries where they have you awake during the surgery? No, no. So you're the second person to ask me that this week. Um, no, actually, I was definitely out cold, um, which was good because I can't imagine even being awake during that. Um, they, um, it was just so serious, you know what I mean? Like, it was, like I was trying to, like, have this sort of, like, I don't know, not nonchalant attitude, but trying to, like, be positive and stuff. And, like, my surgeon was so grave. Like, he was so, like, before the surgery was so serious. And um, it was, you know, but the recovery process was hell. But it was, you know, the month I was in the hospital was beyond awful. But it was, like, amazing, the, like, show of, like, love from people. I don't even, you know, like, I didn't even know, you know. Like, one day I got, like, I'm not religious at all, but, like, my friend Don, his his mother, he told his mother about it, and she had, she was in some prayer group in Illinois, and, like, all the members of her prayer group, like, sent me this card with all their signatures, people that I've never even met. I've never even met Don's mother. Like, right. I've never even, you know, and, like, all these people were, like, praying for my recovery. I mean, that was, like, pretty amazing. Like, I, you know, I would really, like, say that you're pretty cold if you don't feel something from that, you know what I mean? Right, right. Whether or not, it has nothing to do with your own personal beliefs, to know that, like, you know, people are, like, pulling for you, it's 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 really incredible. So I was so fortunate to have, you know, my mother there with me and my family being so, you know, of course, obviously so supportive and just people visiting me and, and just really having so much, you know, love around me. It was really great, you know, that portion of it and... um when I met- one of the bizarre vendors, um, who was in the book, but is is now one of the organizers, happened by chance to be a physical therapist at the hospital where I was, and so like every day I would see him, and you know, and his name is Aldo, and um, you know he would like he would take me for walks and like up and downstairs, and you know I had to do all these exercises, but that was really nice that he was there. You know, and uh, he was a friend I'd made through the bazaar. You know, we that we got really close over that time period because I wasn't that close with him before. And so, you know, and then you know, months and months afterwards, being out of the hospital, um, you know, I was lucky that like I, I had I still had to finish editing my book when I got out of the hospital. So like I, you know, I don't even remember writing most of some of the. Some of the parts that I did when I got out of the hospital, but, you know, my publishers were extremely supportive. You know, they sent me flowers, and they were like, you know, like the day I was in the hospital, they were like, you know, we don't want you to worry about the book. Don't even think about it. Put it out of your mind. We're on top of it. You know, your priority is to get well. And, I mean, I was so, like, they were so... One, I mean, on one hand, who could really, like, what are you going to say to a brain surgery patient? Oh, where's that book? But, I mean, it's right. like, beyond supportive, you know? Right. And really helpful afterwards, like, with the editing and, and the tying up the loose ends and um, the whole crew at Vikings 
completely awesome. Um, and then, you know, throughout the, you know, and I was able to still, like, organize the bazaar with the help of my, you know, co-organizers and, and do a lot of traveling for the book, um, you know, but, like, it was a very lonely year. You know, I spent most of it alone, you know, at home, sort of just, like, resting, you know, not really doing much. I couldn't work. I, I had trouble, you know, moving about, like, so I'm really glad that as, as sort of amazing as it was in terms of being an interesting year, I'm really glad that it's over. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> was it, do you, do you feel that it was good to have this project to come back to in this bazaar that you've created and, Oh you know, yeah, kind because, of, because it was just like I I loved our meetings because it was like I got to sit around with like you know five or six friends and work on something you know and it was like I was so sad every time I had every time a meeting came to an end I didn't want to go home you know I didn't want so um, that was great and I, I just love like the fact that I'm going to start this podcast with Lori Petiti one of my co-organizers is just you know. I'm so psyched to have, like, I'm so fortunate to have all this stuff to really sink my teeth into, you know, and to really, like, get me going because one of the things I hated about recovery, and I'm still, like, not fully recovered, but, you know, much better, obviously, but um, I didn't, I don't like being bored. Boredom is, like, the most frustrating thing for me, you know, and and uh, it's just good when I have structure and projects and, and stuff like that. But for a time, there was a time where I could not, like, pull my head together, really, to be like, you know, I mean, it took, like, all the energy I had just to do, like, an hour's worth of editing, you know, right. a day, you know. And I had hired um, my friend Ben, actually, who's in the book, uh, to be my assistant um, when I first got out of the hospital because I couldn't drive and all this stuff. So he would drive me places and he would pay all my bills and help me because, like, I only had this sort of, like, very limited sort of brain power moment. And uh, I was literally, like, scatterbrained for a long time. Like, you know, things were really weird, too, because they were, the, you know, they told me coming out of surgery, you know, you're going to kind of be crazy for, like, a few months. Like, because we just cut up your brain and it has to, like, put itself back together. So, like, you're wow. going to have, like, all kinds of weird stuff happen sort of emotionally and mentally that is not going to have any kind of basis in, like, your life's events. Like, you're going to be really sad or depressed, but it's not going to be because anything happened. You know, it's just your brain healing and stuff. And and it was, like, a lot of it was, like, pretty exhausting. (laughs) But, you know, I'm just so, like, I just feel so lucky to be able to do the things that, that, I, you know, get to do, and I'm looking forward to 31, because 30 was, like, kind of this weird anticlimactic birthday. It was nice, but it wasn't kind of the milestone blowout that I hoped for. <laughs> and when is 31 coming up? You said it's coming up soon? May 22. Okay, well, I, I want to wish you a happy birthday early here, and I'm so glad that things have just, you know, came out of this. You know, you sound great. Thank you very much. I mean, it, and I, of course I can't see you because we're, you know, you're right. in California and I'm... Oh, I look fantastic. Oh, you look fantastic. Well, <laughs> listeners, he looks fantastic. You heard it right from him. Um, <laughs> well, I don't know if you have any... It, thank you for sharing that story. I, oh, I think yeah. it's really remarkable um, what you've come through and, you know, and um, we're all anxious to see what you're going to do next. Um, uh-huh. Do you have plans for what you're going to do next? Well, I, you know... Besides the podcast. podcast. And we have this uh, 
San Francisco Bazaar, which is kind of new for us. It's not. It's a holiday, and it's part of a larger event, the Maker Fair by Make Magazine. Right, right. That, that info is all on the site. Um, so that's kind of new. And then the fact that we're getting the jump on the Bazaar so early this year, um, we're just really excited for the crafters to have a lot more time once they've been accepted to, like, get stuff done. And we're actually we're working on a magazine um, to go with the event, like so, like at the event, you'll you know you'll get a magazine that we've done. So like a bizarre, bizarre magazine. Uh huh. Oh, mean, that's exciting. Ongoing. I guess maybe if someone wanted to pay us to do it ongoing, that'd be one thing. But I mean, we're just doing it for the one event. Um, and just like it, you know, all the time, just like working off what we've learned. Like, okay, we know how to do all these. We know how to do these big things. Now we can attend to these other little details to make the event even better because we don't have to figure out where to rent tables. We already know how to do that. Right. Or like, we don't have to worry about booking a hall because we already know how to do that. We already have a date, you know. So, it's just, it's exciting. I just am, I'm excited for the people that I work with and the people that do the bazaar. I mean, I know some people have gone on to, like, really get hooked up in terms of, like, you know, uh, Sean and Aldo, my friends, have this line called Social Studies, and then they're about to launch a menswear line with some a store in San Francisco. And wow. Because of, because of, like, stuff that happened at the bazaar. And because of this idea that you had sitting, where were you when you had the idea for this? I was hanging out with some friends in Brookline, Massachusetts. That's just, that's cool, and it just kind of underscores, too, the fact that sometimes when you say, hey, wouldn't it be cool, and whatever comes next can really catapult a person right. into something really cool. Yeah. So I'm just like I'm I'm I when I'm working on the bazaar and when I'm working on crafts and when I'm getting these things together and organizing like I'm ha- I'm the happiest that I ever am. I I could, you know, hopefully someday I'll have like enough business savvy to like make this you know, workable as some kind of financial career. I don't think that's it's a few years away, but but I'm so, like, I love it more than anything. So, you know, and I'm really happy that, like, other people seem to love it, too, both participants and, uh, you know, patrons. Well, and that's when you know you need to keep doing whatever it is that you're doing. So, yeah. yeah. Well, congratulations to you, and thank, thank you so much for sharing, oh, look, oh. two hours of your day with me. Oh, I appreciate that. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much to Greg for being on the show and for smashing the stereotype of crafting in America. By creating Bizarre Bizarre, He has freed crafters everywhere to be who they are and craft as they please. Rock on, Greg. Actually, that's exactly what he's going to do. Greg and his band, Pretty Pony, are going to play us out with a song called Mandroid. Enjoy, and until next week, craft sanity, my friends. Oh, and a little program P.S. I apologize for the delay in this show. It's uh, about a day off my usual pace, um, bouncing back from a root canal and a little holiday travel. So um, sorry if you noticed any delay. Thanks for uh, sticking with me, despite it.
Thanks for listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast with Jennifer Ackerman Haywood. Visit CraftSanity.com for more information about today's guests and links to subscribing to the podcast. Want to support the show? Follow the link to vote for Craft Sanity on Podcast Alley once a month. You can also make a donation or buy goods at the Craft Sanity store. Have a suggestion for a future guest or have other feedback? Email Jennifer at CraftSanity.com. Thanks again for listening to Craft Sanity.